I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. And welcome into the TC Live Podcast, proud product of Tennis Channel on the Tennis Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you as always for listening. With tennis still sidelined due to the COVID-19 worldwide pandemic, Tennis Channel Live focused on the illustrious past of the game with a special history week. On Tuesday, one of the game's true pioneers, the great Billie Jean King joined the show to discuss the formation of the Virginia Slim Circuit, which laid the groundwork for the first WTA tour. One of the original nine founding members of the first female tennis tour, Billie Jean King joins Tracy Austin and Steve Weissman to describe the experiences, difficulties, and ultimately successes in helping to create the current women's tennis landscape. And on the 50th anniversary of the original nine, we are so happy to have the Hall of Famer Billie Jean King with us here on Tennis Channel Live. Thanks so much for joining us. I know I've seen you active on social media. How have you been during uh, this quarantine time? Actually, um, it's been great for me, but I know so many people are suffering so much, especially we're in New York City. uh, And it's it's the epicenter of the COVID-19 challenge. And I just... It's the first responders I want to thank, and I know families with children at home, and a lot of times in New York you live in an apartment, it's really tight, but just the whole world suffering from it, and obviously tennis is really suffering as a sport, and all sports are, because it's going to be very interesting to see how, how it goes, but for me personally, I am so blessed that, you know, I've got my workout room here, I've got, I've got my piano, I've got... I mean, I love to read, um, and I'm a cave woman when I'm not uh, working. I love to be by myself just thinking and reading and thinking about the future and, and uh, brainstorming about how we can make the world a better place. So for me personally, this time is um, I'm rested. I'm totally rested. I don't think I've ever been rested in my whole life. <laughs> so I'm like, it's, 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 an, it's like a new sensation, but I'm uh, grateful for the time and I just pray for everyone, you know, that uh, we're going to get out of this all right. Billie Jean, it's great to have you working with us here today uh, at Tennis Channel. Uh, When we think back to the original nine, what were the conversations like when things got started? Fast and furious. Um, It was a a very difficult time because I always wanted uh, pro tennis. I wanted us to be together. It wasn't happening. So uh, plan B was to... You know, uh, my former husband, Larry King, said, why don't you and Rosie go talk to um, Gladys because she owns the, she's the publisher of World Tennis Magazine. Because of that, she'll have advertisers. Because of that, she'll have contacts. She'll know all the CEOs of all these companies. And so we did talk to her. And then Nancy Ritchie ran over to us during the Open as well. Um, And we sat with her again uh, during the U.S. Open in 19... uh, 70 and so she quickly put this tournament together in Houston and while the tournament was being put together we kept meeting and what came out of that meeting is the original line and signing the one dollar contract with Gladys Hellman things were happening every five minutes we were going to get sanctioned we were going to get sanctioned um it was a nightmare and and Rosie Casals won the the as it says there the first tournament and I'd had a knee operation that summer and so I wasn't going to play in the tournament. We only had an eight draw. Um, uh, Patty Hogan was going to play, but then she pulled out, and I hobbled around, and I got to be part of history uh, by being in the tournament. But uh, the Houston Racquet Club people were amazing. Uh, it's it's going it, to. I'm in the middle of doing a book right now. It'll be in the book uh, when it comes out of just how difficult the times were uh, for all of us and. We, did, we got to a point we didn't care if we were suspended. Uh, we just said we got to do this. And there's three things. There's three things. These are the three things we dreamed about for the 
future generations. Number one, there'd be a place to compete. Any girl in the world, if you're good enough, you'd be, there'd be a place to uh, compete. Number two, that we would be appreciated for our accomplishments, not only our looks. And number three, to truly, truly make a living. And those were our three points. And even when the WTA was formed three years later, we kept, I at least kept that mantra to always remember that. And because right now the players aren't playing and this is a good time for them to understand how, what it feels like not to have a place to compete, not to be able to make money. And this is what was going along around with us in the, in 50 years ago. And so I hope when the players come back, that they will help shape the future in a way they had never thought about shaping it and really think about it. But read history, learn about it. Um, women were always second-class citizens. I mean, I would have given anything for Jack Kramer to come to me and said, oh, um, you know, we want to sign you. And how funny is it they keep talking about women's tennis didn't make money? Well, I got news for you. The, his tour almost collapsed in the 60s, and all the players had to chip in to sign Rod Laver and how, how they forget when the men aren't making money, they don't talk about it. But that's, that was a fact in the early 60s. To give Rod $125,000, they all had to chip in some money because it was totally failing at that time. So people don't talk about when the men were on the edge, just like the NBA almost collapsed in the late 70s and early 80s. No one talks about that. They only talk about when, when it's women, they just can't wait to say, we can't do this, we didn't make money, we didn't do this. It happens in, It happens every place. So I just wish hey. people knew the true history. Yeah. Hey, Billy, so, yeah, we've seen how difficult it was for the men. You've spoken about how difficult it was for the women. I've read your book, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, and I suggest that to every player. Uh, you are still worried about signing the contract an hour before you were guys going to start to play in Houston. I mean, Gladys Heldman obviously came in with Joel Coleman, the CEO of, of Philip Morris and therefore Virginia Slims, and they really helped you. When did you really feel like, okay, this is going to work? Because it had to be so scary feeling like, okay, I'm going to be banned from, by the USTA. I'm going to be banned from all of the majors. I mean, just the fear that you guys were having to go out with the original nine and sign that contract, that $1 contract. Well, we were very afraid, but we were, we were, we were into action, which is the most important thing. Uh, because you have to realize from September of 70 to the beginning of 71, we had no infrastructure, we had no tour, we had nothing. And we actually had a series of tournaments by January 1st, 1971. Larry, my former husband and I, owned the first two tournaments of, uh, with up four other people because we didn't have any money but we got them to come in with us. Shell Cavalli was there with British Motors. Uh, he promoted the first tournament in San Francisco. And we had the first two tournaments of this series. But to get an infrastructure started, to get a series of tournaments started in three months, I don't think people realize how risky and how difficult it was. But we just worked 24-7 and making it happen. And it was a glorious moment when we had our first tournament in San Francisco at the Civic Auditorium. And we got great crowds, we made money, it was amazing. And all the best players, Chris Ebert and um, Martina eventually came on board. We had two tours for like a year and a half to two years is the reason we had to have our WTA to put everybody together, at least the women together. Of course, I've always kept, I always keep dreaming that the men and women will form uh, one association uh, some year, maybe before I'm dead, but I doubt it. But I think that would make the sport so much stronger. We'll see, Billie Jean. I mean, this could be a situation where, you know, the players need to come together. As you said, gave them a place to compete, had them appreciated for their accomplishments, and, of course, to truly make a living. And we can see now with the millions and millions of dollars that these women's tennis players are making. Uh, the entire sport owes you a debt of gratitude, and, and we certainly appreciate you joining us today here on Tennis Channel Live. Well, you and uh, keep keep the dream going. Let's go. Anyway, thank you so much, Jenna's channel and everybody there. Um, it's fun watching the history. And it's fun uh, thinking about the future. Always great to hear from Billie Jean King. And I was actually fortunate enough to meet her when I was a 21-year-old college student. She came to St. Louis to speak in an event. She couldn't have been nicer. Gave me an interview, one of the first ones I ever conducted. I was gracious with her time. And it's just great to see someone of her legendary status always give back 
to the game that she's already given so much to and look ahead, as she said, to the future. One other week brought on, sadly, another cancellation in the world of tennis, but it doesn't get any more seismic than this event being scrapped. On Wednesday, the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club officially confirmed that Wimbledon will not take place in 2020. It's the first cancellation of the event since World War II. John Wertheim, Andy Roddick, Tracy Austin, and Jan Michael Gamble all share their thoughts on the iconic event being shut down here now on the Tennis Channel Live podcast. Of course, the big news to discuss straight away, no tennis through July 13th. Wimbledon has been canceled for the first time in 75 years. They held the emergency meeting. What do you make of what they decided? You know, it's, it's funny. I think a lot of us saw this coming, and Wimbledon was, was very upfront. I mean, they sent the players an email a few days ago saying, we're going to make an announcement. Just, just so you know, we're not interested in a closed-door scenario. So everyone was expecting this, and yet somehow seeing that email going out, um, somehow that still registered uh, a, a level of surprise and shock. And we keep hearing I mean, I was just looking at, uh, at images. I mean, the last time Wimbledon was canceled, the Germans had essentially dropped a bomb on center court. So that should give you some sense of uh, this was a decision not taken lightly. But uh, we now have two consecutive majors uh, that have been postponed. Let's hope, uh, J Jan Michael, I don't know about you, I, I hope we have that streak snapped because uh, two majors out in a row is too, too many. I mean, you, you, you talk about you, there, there was some controversy a little bit about Roland Garros kind of making that decision so quickly and kind of moving. And there was some scheduling issues and. You know, Wimbledon then deciding now to to do this, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, that there's nobody's going to really be ready by then. Who knows what's going to happen? Hopefully, we can get a hold of, of this, you know, coronavirus thing that we're all facing, you know, worldwide. Uh, it, it is, I got those same emails. I, I uh, Wimbledon being my best slam, I get the little final eight club uh, <laughs> uh, emails sent out, which I'm, I've grasped onto them. I'm happy to get those. And, and I got that this morning and I was, I was like, I hope this is an April Fool's. You know, uh, it is April 1st, and that's the first thing I thought. But it, obviously, it's not. It's a lot more serious than that. And, uh, you know, we'll be missing tennis there. It's, it's, it's my favorite event. Um, it's, it's extremely unfortunate. But I, I, I think we're going to see more of this. Uh, hopefully, it can get contained or we can figure something out before then. But it's, 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 tough, to, it's tough to see all this kind of just fall apart. John, Roland Garros was suspended. Wimbledon is completely canceled. You tweeted the fact that it's not insignificant that Wimbledon foreclosed the possibility of rescheduling later this year. How come? Yeah, it's really striking to me how differently these two majors you mentioned handled it. And Wimbledon's the second sentence of their release is, we'll see you in 2021. So they you know, wrote off the possibility that they may be looking for another calendar date or this was a postponement. They essentially said flatly, it ain't happening in 2020. We'll see you guys in a year. I'll tell you one other major that I think really impacted Wimbledon is the very next press release the All England Club set out was to the British National Health Center saying, we will be happy to help lend supplies. We will be happy to make this space available. This is what, of course, the USTA and the US Open has done with the National Tennis Center. So Wimbledon made a decision today, but you get the feeling that the two majors that are bracket the tournament, the French Open and the US Open, uh, they, they both sort of uh, had their impact in two very different ways on today's announcement. Yeah, I think that was a fantastic decision for them to do that. The USTA did that, obviously, uh, you know, this week and and made it made it available and, and it's great for the all england club to have made that same decision space is if they need the space and who knows what kind how long this is going to go on if we can contain it by our social distancing hopefully we can do that but it's great to have those, these big spaces that are so useful um now for people in, in medical you know emergencies andy you've made a lot of memories at wimbledon uh what went through your mind when you first saw the news that the championships were canceled this year well, I had a real moment of uh, kind of disappointment. It was about a week ago, and I, you know, it was when uh, Roland Garros kind of tipped their cap and, and and went and rushed to a an open time slot in the year, uh, ruffled some feathers. They might have done it without kind of speaking with the, the rest of the powers that be in tennis. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe Wimbledon slides in somewhere. And then I, I read someone was like, well, the grass is different. You know, it's not as if you can just move a U.S. Open or move Roland Garros. The the playing conditions are so specific with growing the grass that that was kind of my moment. The announcement that happened today is disappointing, but in my mind, it was kind of expected after what I had read uh, it, with, with how precise you have to be with growing the grass and getting it ready for a certain type of year. It's not just something that you can adjust on a whim. So 
uh, it, it's horrible. I mean, it, you go you go to Wimbledon as a tennis player, it feels like you're you're going home. You know, it, it feels like it's the it's the cathedral. It's the it's the place that has all the history. So. Um, it, it's just, it's, it, it stinks, you know, uh, with, like everything else with, uh, with this virus and the things that we're, we're missing and the memories that we're missing. It, it's just one of those things. And obviously in, in the tennis world, it's, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. And when you think about the Grand Slam ramifications, Andy, and the fact that, you know, it seems years ago now, but uh, Novak Djokovic won the Australian Open on February 2nd, his 17th major. Roger with 20. We don't know how much longer he'll be playing. And on the women's side with Serena Williams going for that record 24, now will miss a championship that she's won so many times. How does this affect the ramifications all time? Well, yeah, I mean, this this could have a, a direct impact on, on our history books forever. Um, you know, if you were to ask pretty much anyone in, in, in tennis and it, it, what's Roger's best shot at winning a slam. What's Serena's best shot at winning a slam. Uh, and Novak has probably been the best player on, on, on grass for the last six or seven years. So this has a major, major impact on, on potentially on the all time slams lead. I mean, Serena's going after Margaret court and, you know, may have just lost her best shot to, to tie her. Um, you know, so this is, this is not only a, a, a kind of a, a temporary inconvenience or just, Kind of pushing it off to another year we're in kind of a golden age of of rewriting our history books on on the men's and the women's side and so this is a this is a real blow um you know someone like rafa might actually be going okay well you know maybe roger and, and novak are the favorites i'm still going to get my my look at most likely you know we don't know what we don't know but i'm still most likely going to get my look at uh, at the u.s open and, and the french open so uh you, you hate to think about it in the terms of of, of who it benefits but uh, a real blow to Novak and a real blow to, to Roger as far as it goes, the all-time slams lead, and, and, and maybe uh, mostly with, uh, with Serena. Andy, obviously unprecedented times, but now the players know that there's nothing on the tennis calendar at least till July 13th. That's a long time for a tennis player. That's three and a half months. Talk about the mindset of what these players might be going through and then also the top players make plenty of money. But how about some of these young kids or the players that are right on the edge that are ranked, you know, 80 to 300 that aren't making any money at all? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you you the, the headlines are made when the Grand Slams announce a record prize money pool. Right. And you see that Roger is the. Uh, pulls in the most money yearly and you look at these Forbes list and, 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 and all of that is, is glitz glamor and presents a certain narrative around the world of tennis. But the reality is people rank 50 and lower have to cover all their own expenses. They rely on the prize money. They rely on, you know, the 11 month, 11 month a year tennis calendar. And, and that's just out the door. So hopefully the powers that be on the ATP side and the WTA side, maybe some of the, 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 the players that have, have uh, kind of reaped the financial benefits, there needs to be some strategic element with coming up how you're going to fill the gap for the people that haven't quite made it financially and aren't, aren't financially viable. It's, it's it, you know, you, you don't think of pro sports uh, in the same vein as a lot of uh, service industries who are going through a rough time. But for the people 200, 300 in the world, it's the exact same scenario. You know, they, 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 they can't afford uh, not to work. So uh, I hope that conversations are being had on how to supplement uh, incomes for, for some people that uh, in the tennis world that, that might need it to survive uh, until the, the next events get played. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. History Week on Tennis Channel Live highlighted many of the legendary figures in the tennis world, celebrating achievements and accolades both on and off the court. That holds especially true for Martina Navratilova, who won 59 total slams as a singles and doubles player in the open era. That's the most ever, in case you were wondering. She joined Jimmy Arias, Tracy Austin, and Steve Weissman to discuss her journey to tennis excellence, the revolutionary training methods she used, and of course, the epic rivalry with Chrissy Everett that featured 80 matches in a 16-year span. That's not a mistake that I just said, 80 matches in 16 years. There's only one Martina, and here she is on the TC Live podcast. 
We now welcome in Martina Navratilova. Hope you are safe and healthy. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us today on Tennis Channel Live. Martina, of course, the breaking news we heard earlier, yep. Wimbledon canceled for the first time since 1945. You can't say Wimbledon without mentioning your name, the 20 titles there across singles, doubles, and mixed. What was your reaction when you heard that? Well, it was not uh, unexpected, as Tracy said earlier. I, I called this about a month ago. I just didn't see how that was doable. But uh, still, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a that finite blow. And uh, what a shame. I mean, I've been coming there every year since 73. I've missed one. And, uh, you know, you think World War II only stopped one Wimbledon or a couple of them. And now we get this pandemic that uh, just put uh, the whole world uh, to a stop. So... You know, tennis is a luxury, and hopefully we'll get to watch uh, these amazing players play again. But right now it's about staying safe and uh, staying healthy and, and trying to do your part. Martina, I want to ask you about a couple of bookends at Wimbledon for you. Obviously, nine championships there. The 78 final, you beat Chris, and that was your dream, was always to, to win Wimbledon. When you lifted that trophy up, it almost seemed heavy. It almost seemed like such a relief to you. And then I want to go also ask you about the 1990 Wimbledon, where you beat Helen Will's uh, record, and you got the ninth. Yeah. Just talk a little bit about each. Well, the first one was difficult because, that, as you saw the, in the biography, although I had to stop watching because I was going to start <clears throat> crying, uh, but that was a dream of, of my family uh, for such a long time, and then my parents couldn't be there. They couldn't get out of Czech Republic. I, I didn't even know that they had seen the match until after the match, uh, where they watched uh, on a TV in, in Pilsen. So it was a very bittersweet moment that I, I worked for since I was you know, five years old. It was my, a dream of mine since eight, and I finally get there. And I can't share it with my family, who, particularly my father, who had everything to do with me getting there. Um, so very bittersweet. Um, and then 1990, was I, uh, that was the record that I really went after. I've, I've said this many times. Uh, I've broken some other records, but this is the one that I really wanted, the ninth Wimbledon title uh, for both men and women. That would be a record. And I don't think it would ever be broken, although Roger and, and Serena are certainly stepping on my heels right now. But... Uh, um that was uh that yeah that, that was special because of the history um that that's all yeah and Martin was circle. there so that was brilliant to circle back a little bit to your first Wimbledon because I I saw the documentary and I saw how you had some anxious moments early in the match you whiffed an overhead mm -hmm. got hit in the face and then Chris came over and sort of patted you on the head you end up winning the match. Was that moment when she patted you on the head, did that sort of, I don't know, get you to a state of mind that you were relaxed enough to play your game? Yeah, the one that got me over the hump is when I whiffed that overhead because, you know, there's people watching, but then, you know, the world is watching, the tennis world at least. And uh, what's the worst thing you can do is whiff a shot. And, and I did that. So after that, it could only get better. So that actually, that shot relaxed me. I'm like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. But then you got to kind of deal with it because that's the worst that can happen. And then when Chris got me with that ball on the back of the head, it was, uh, it was just funny because how many times do you get hit in the head? Like three times ever. And how many times do you get hit in the head in singles? Never. It only happens in doubles. So everything kind of that never happened before or since happened in that match. Uh, but Chris was really sweet. We were good friends. I was, you know, she she was trying to go cross court, but in quite, I was way too close to the net. But you know, uh, you do what you can, right? It's just a tennis ball. Uh, but uh, that, that after that, again, I, I maybe I relaxed even more. Uh, again, what what else could go wrong, right? Uh, losing the match, uh, yeah. But uh, I was in the Wimbledon final. I was happy to be there, and I was playing against a great friend. So it's 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 all good. Martina, I want to go forward a couple of years. I kind of think of your career as before Nancy Lieberman and after Nancy Lieberman. She seemed to make such a huge difference in yep. your career as far as you were a pioneer. You were the first one that really went into the weight room and got so fit. Robert Haas with your diet. You were just a completely different player after that. And Renee Richards came on board as well. Well, that, that Nancy Lieberman and Renee happened just back to back. Nancy really... Uh, after Wimbledon, uh, I lost in the semifinals at Wimbledon in 81. And she says, you know, what are you waiting for? You're 26 years old, almost, and uh, or 25 years old. And 
you're not, you know, you're you're not playing, you're not doing the best that you can off the court and on the court. I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, you need to get in better shape. That's when we started training that summer. And uh, and then I lost to you in the finals during uh, the US Open, but it was during the US Open that Renee Richards started helping me. And uh, and then after after the Open, I asked her to be my coach. And that's when, that's when my career took off because I finally had a coach. For six years, I did not have a coach. And if I had to do it over again, that's what I would do differently. I would get a coach. The, the physical fitness, of course, that was a huge part of it. But the bigger part of it was the, the technical aspect and tactical aspect that Rene Richards brought. And then, and then Micah Step took to a, to, a, to a whole new level. So um, I, I was lucky. Uh, it was kind of a um, happening by stance that Rene happened to be there when I was looking for somebody to hit with before a match. Uh, I was all on my own uh, for six years. And, uh, and then I got organized and, uh, and, then, and then my career took off. Martini, you see sort of in the men's game now, you have Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and they seem to be motivating each other to continue playing and continue competing, trying to get those records and those grand slams. Do you think your career was as great as it was in some ways because Chris Everett and Tracy Austin were there motivating? Was that the motivation for you or was it just to be number one in the world? Well, initially it was to be number one, uh, but, uh, but then it was... Chris totally motivated me. Of course, Tracy started stepping on my heels as she was younger and beat me a bunch of times as well. But uh, but it was Chris was that was number one. So that was the carrot. So in order to get to number one, I need to beat Chris. I can't get there without beating Chris. Uh, so that was the carrot and motivation when I was training, when I was doing all that uh, you know all that off the court work as well as uh, tactical, etc. I need to find ways to beat Chris. And and Tracy played very similar, except Tracy had a better forehand, Chris had a better backhand. But other than that, they played very similar style, both great uh, athletes, great movers, and I had, it was hard to find openings against them. So uh, that was definitely a motivating factor. It's thanks to Chris I became a better player. Uh, I probably I would have won more slams if it hadn't been for Chris, but I wouldn't have been as good a player, I think. You know, we both pushed each other. We both would have won more without the other, but we wouldn't have been as good a tennis player without the other. Martini, you're, you're such a pioneer. And obviously you won so many doubles titles with Billie Jean. Actually, she became your coach as well uh, later in your career. But the original nine, there's so much talk this week about the history <laughs> of tennis. And you were too young. You weren't quite on the tour. But what did they mean to you? Uh, well, you know, my cousin uh, defected to Canada, and he sent me a, a prescription, a subscription to uh, World Tennis Magazine, which, which was owned by uh, uh, Gladys Heldman. And I poured through that magazine every month when I got it. I knew everybody's results. I basically had a ranking in my head where everybody was, oh, Wendy Overton beat Val Zickenfuss. Oh, that's a good win. I knew where everybody was. I followed like crazy. I mean, I've read it from cover to cover, even though my English was pretty lousy, but uh, I studied the game. I studied all the players. And uh, and so to meet them then later, Nancy Ritchie, I mean, I played her at the French Open my first year. You know, she was a hero to me. I mean, all these players were superstars. So um, the, the, uh, I've told Billy this. I, I wish I had been born a couple of years earlier so I could have been part of the original nine because it would have been original 10 because I would have totally been there. Uh, you know, signing up for, for the dollar, leading the way. But uh, those pioneers were brave women, uh, especially the lower rank players when, uh, you know, they, they really weren't making that much money anyway. They took a big chance. And, um, and Billie Jean, of course, led the way along with Rosie Casals, who I don't think gets enough credit for her part in all of this. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, glad that, that Chris and I and, and Pam Shriver and then you later were able to carry the torch that these nine uh, first, first lit. Speaking of Billie Jean King, when she was your coach, Martina, she had you write, I won Wimbledon every day yes. up until that last match. And then you went out and you won Wimbledon. So I'm curious, what are you writing every day now? <laughs> uh, I clean the kitchen every day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've become a very good housekeeper. Um, you know, I do once a week uh, the senior uh, hour shop at Whole Foods and, uh, uh, you know, I have my mask and my gloves and, uh, you know, you just do what you need to do. So the kitchen is sparkling clean, I must say. Um, and, and I'm running out of recipes, so I don't, I don't know what to cook.
From one of the game's all-time greats to one of the current top players, the TC Live podcast catches up with American mainstay Madison Keys next. The world number 13 explains what she's up to during the tennis hiatus, what it's like to be a member of the WTA Players Council, and launching her new initiative, Kindness Wins. Certainly wish, Maddie, that we were interviewing you in Charleston right now, but it is always great to have you on Tennis Channel. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, today, we are re-airing our documentary on Arthur Ashe, just such an influential figure in the sport of tennis. What stands out to you about Arthur's legacy? The biggest thing for me is he was obviously the first to do it all. So being able to accomplish everything that he accomplished, but to have no one before him and he's kind of setting the standard is really impressive. And it just really inspires, I think, a lot of us now to continue. And, you know, when we're playing in his stadium, you know, to kind of do him proud. Maddie, we know that you started a charity, uh, Kindness Wins, for young girls that were being bullied. But now, during the coronavirus era, during this time, you have started Kindness in Crisis. Tell us about that. Uh, Kindness in Crisis is, I think, in total now, there's four athletes. We're all auctioning off um, some of our gear or, you know, just things that we thought people might want. And all of the proceeds from my donations are going to No Kid Hungry. That's that's awesome. Uh, all, kindness always wins, Maddie. We see Michaela Schifrin, uh, the, the world-class skier, yourself. There's some great items. If you go on, uh, go to the Twitter handle of Kindness Wins Foundation, and you can see all of that fantastic stuff that Madison is doing right now to help folks in this coronavirus crisis. Uh, Maddie, you're also on the WTA Player Council right now. We had Steve Simon on last week, the CEO. He said uh, they were still planning on, on playing June 8th. Right now, no tennis through June 7th. What are the conversations like on that player council now? Honestly, it's just mostly, you know, trying to make the most of what we're dealing with right now, trying to figure out how we can move tournaments around and what tournaments can move and, you know, who's on a more strict time frame. And it's, I mean, it changes every day, obviously, with the information that we're getting. But um, everyone's trying to stay super optimistic and make the most of the rest of the tennis calendar. Maddie, athletes are so used to having a timeline. My next tournament two weeks away, or even in the off season, I have six weeks off. But there's so much uncertainty now as to when you'll be playing next. What are you doing with that time for your training, and how are you handling that mentally? It's definitely been weird for me. I don't think I've had this much time off from tennis since I was like seven years old. So it's been something that I'm learning to deal with, but obviously very fortunate to be healthy. And especially in Florida, we've had great weather and it's been really nice. So been working out outside and just kind of, I don't know if anyone saw my Instagram the other day, Bjorn was hitting volleys off the side of my house. So <laughs> I love it. You got to get creative, Maddie. Uh, one of the thoughts in this coronavirus era is, is playing sports potentially with no fans in the stands. Uh, how would you feel about something like that? I think I'm a little bit torn because obviously we want to go out and we want to have fans in the stadium and, you know, not having that atmosphere would be really difficult. But at the same time, if people want just to be able to watch us on TV and have that part of sports back, then I'd be happy to get out there and play. Maddie, I have a kind of personal question because I follow you in social media and you really let us all in on your cooking escapades and your decorating. And you, you talked about not having this much time since you were seven years old. Has this time allowed you to kind of do some things that you really haven't had a chance to do because you've been so busy? We've definitely looked up new recipes and tried to start cooking some things that we weren't used to, um, mostly just because we knew if we just stayed within the you know 10 or 12 things that we normally eat, we'd get pretty bored. So we've been trying to mix things up. My house has never been cleaner or more organized. <laughs> I've never done this much laundry in my life. So I feel like everything's very in order right now. That's good. So whenever things start again, you, you'll be in a good place. Yeah. 
<laughs> and if you're ever bored, Maddie, you're always welcome here on Tennis Channel Live. So uh, thanks for taking the time. Stay healthy, stay safe, and hopefully we see you soon. Yeah, hope to see you guys soon. As mentioned last week, 2003 U.S. Open champion and former world number one Andy Roddick will be joining Tennis Channel Live on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays as a weekly contributor, and we couldn't be happier. On Monday, Roddick joined Jimmy Arias, Jan Michael Gamble, and Steve Weissman to talk about a variety of topics, including being coached by Jimmy Connors from 2006 to 2008, and if he sees himself getting into coaching someday. Listen as Andy also shares some personal asides and even played Peacemaker back in the day between Connors and another well-known American tennis rival. Hint, hint, he's from New York. Here now he is, Andy Roddick, on the TC Live podcast. First time I saw Andy was, I was actually commentating the finals of the Eddie Herr Juniors. I don't remember who you played. You won in three sets. Who'd you beat? Tudor and Evans. Sorry, little guy. He was really good tennis player, but that was like the that was, that was the first week I ever actually played well in my life, Jimmy Arias. You, you, you were there to see it. <laughs> I was. It was awesome. <laughs> We are going way back here. Um, of course, Andy, for a couple of years, you worked with the Hall of Famer, Jimmy Connors. You were outside the top 10. He got you that Cincy title and then obviously getting to the finals of the U.S. Open. Uh, you said you don't just learn stuff about tennis with Jimmy. What's the biggest thing he taught you outside of the game? Well, Jimmy had an amazing way of, you know, I, I, at that point in my career, I was actually struggling a little bit in, in, in 06. I hadn't played well and was kind of in danger of falling out of the top 10, which is a place that I had lived for, you know, the, the, the previous five years. And he had a, a he, he kind of taught me a different way of, of kind of thinking a little bit more selfishly, not being as concerned about strategy as it pertains to the person you're playing with, but kind of taking what you have, throwing it out there and let the chips fall where they may. And um, you know, there's always there's obviously never a shortage of opinions around anyone's game at the top in uh, in the tennis world. And, uh, you know, it, it was nice to kind of have clear, concise uh, objectives day to day. And, um, you know, Jimmy's one of my one of my favorite people. Um, you know, it, it's weird. You hear stories of him back in the day where he might have said something to someone that was maybe inappropriate or done something to to make someone upset. Um, but as a coach, he was uh, selfless. You never you had to ask him stories for him to kind of elaborate on on his career. Uh, it, it, it's weird because when he gets into the lines of of, of of a tennis match, he becomes this warrior where it's me against the world and you know screw everyone who's in my way. But away from the court, he rarely raises his voice. You know, he was you know raised by his mother, so around uh, other women, he's very demure, always opens. It, it's just a it's a side of Jimmy Connors that I, I don't think a lot of people would uh, would assume is there. Yeah, Andy, and it's very interesting too because I remember hitting with you a couple times in in Hawaii when you were before the Australian Open. I was injured. Uh, for me, I mean, Jimmy Connors is 100% the whole reason I played tennis because he was my inspiration to play the game. I took his two in a backhand and made two of them. Uh, and you know, I hadn't. You talk about hitting with, you know, with Steffi, some of your heroes. And, and for me, that was the first time I actually got a hit with Jimmy after we hit some balls. And um, I loved the way he kind of ran the court. He was kind of just soft-spoken. Uh, it was all about you. Um, but he did a great job of kind of getting the information across without a way that didn't seem like he, he brought his, what could have been an amazing ego to the court. It was really just about Andy Roddick. And I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, at the at the time, I, I think that's a great read, Jim, Mike. And that's certainly the way I felt. Um when we were there, but at the time it was, it was kind of like a new thing to have someone of the pedigree of Jimmy Connors bring them in, you know, for certain weeks. And, you know, for me, it just meant something different. There were only so many people at that point in my career that could relate to trying to win a Grand Slam or be in that final or be in the New York crowd or try to fire someone up at the U.S. Open. And so just those little moments where someone might have been telling you the same information, but when Jimmy Connors is looking through your soul and telling you something, it just, it just hits deeper. So, um, you know, now it's kind of become a, a, a bit of a trend to kind of bring people back, uh, bring the past champions in, in the fold and kind of use them uh, strategically throughout the year. Speaking of that, Andy, uh, what could it take to get you into the coaching ranks? Who could that be? Oh gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's the one for me. Um, it's, uh, I, I think uh, my favorite thing about uh, my life now is being able to control my geography. And with, uh, you know, four-year-old boy, two-year-old girl, uh, a wife who still likes me most of the time, 
um, you, you know, in different business endeavors. I, I, I wouldn't want to do something if I couldn't commit uh, wholeheartedly to it. And I just don't think that that I could at this point. Um, I, I would probably want it to be uh, an American player. And I mean, hell, I don't even know if I could coach. I don't even know if I know anything through the eyes of someone else. So um, there would have to be, there's a, there's a lot of ifs there, and I, I don't think any of them are really trending the right direction as far as uh, me being a coach. Maybe throw in a Riley Opelka for you. You both had a pretty big serve. He needs some work on the forehand, and I think he'd be <laughs> right there in the top few players in the world. Yeah, I mean, he certainly has a, you know, I, I'm happy to help anyone. I mean, it, I, I think... Uh, it's 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 pretty known if if anyone wanted to call. I can give them my opinion, but giving your opinion, uh, you know, every once in a while I and mean, just kind of lobbing shots can almost be counterproductive sometime with with the coach that's actually on the ground. So, um, you know, I, I I think Riley has a has a has huge upside, maybe as as much as anyone that that we've had in a long time. Um, you know, so he 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 does have the right mentality. I was in, impressed with the way he went through Delray Beach and granted through a couple matches. But uh, you know, I, I'm always happy to to offer an opinion if asked. But I, I certainly don't want to want to be one of those guys who's not really in the mix week after week in tennis, and then all of a sudden kind of lob shots like they know anything uh, just randomly. Um, that that can that can work the, the the wrong way too sometimes. Well, I think you, you do yourself a little bit of a disservice there, Andy. I know I brought uh, Jared Donaldson, and we came and worked with you for a few days in Austin uh, a couple years ago. And, you know, I thought that, you know, just even as you say, sometimes just hearing even the same thing, maybe, or in a little bit of different way, it might ring, ring in true there and kind of sit in your head. Um, you know, I think that you're a great mentor. And I tell you, the things that you told him that day, the things that we worked on, some drills that maybe I didn't know, some stuff that you did, you know, really helped him and, and actually was, was a really good influence going forward. So I think that well, mentorship is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the important thing there, Jim, Mike, is that, you know, you and I have had a relationship for for a long time. So for me, it was, and I remember saying, like, listen, I don't want Jared to come here alone. You know, I, I don't want to come and, you know, be telling him something that is completely opposite of what you've been telling him. I mean, you, you know him, you're there every week. So... Um, in any situation, if there is a young player involved and they have a coach full time that is doing the hardest yards, um, I, I certainly would want it to be a, a conversation between the three of us and not just come in and and uh, you know throw something against the wall that actually sends. Uh, I've seen a lot of coaches kind of make an appearance on someone's court, you know, maybe federation coaches, and all of a sudden they come on. They spend 30 minutes, completely turn everything upside down, and then walk off and say, I'll see you at Wimbledon. I, you, know, you just never really want to be that guy. Right. Andy, I've got to circle back just for my own curiosity with Jimmy Connors as your coach. Because I know when he played, the, what, one of the things that fueled him was sort of his dislike. He made sure he found a way to dislike each of his opponents so that he had that extra energy. Did he try to push that type of attitude on you? Because I know there's a part of him that doesn't like how Roger has made everybody loves each other, kumbaya, even though we're competing every day. Did he try to push that on you at all? Yeah, he wasn't real, real happy with the fact that I said hello to everybody. Um, I, will tell, I will tell you a story. This is, this is a great story for TV. I remember you speaking of that kind of Jimmy Connors edge. I remember it was 06. We're walking through the U.S. Open. And uh, I don't think Mac and Connors had seen each other in who knows how long. And so they walked past each other. And I'm walking with Jimmy and Mac's walking this way. They walked 10 feet past each other. And I'm kind of stuck in the middle. I go, you two, will you let it go? I mean, honestly, you, got, like, you can't say hello. Like your entire history of your professional life is, is aligned with each other. And you walk past each other after not seeing each other for 10 years. And you don't even say hello. Come on, man. And then uh, one of the coolest things was a week later, I think it was like the first weekend of the tournament. I couldn't find Jimmy. It might have been after a match or after a practice. I can't remember. And you know U.S. Open and players' lines where you walk around and you kind of see down the practice courts. And there's like a bit of a crowd at the last practice court. And I'm looking down there, and I see Mac and Jimmy hitting balls like a week later. And I was like, that's the coolest moment I've ever seen. Perfect. Great stuff from Andy Roddick. Again, we're thrilled to have him on. I'm thrilled to have him be a podcast content machine. But now we're going to do something extra with him. There's some bonus content. He did tell a brief story on Friday that involves how he beats someone with a household appliance in the game of tennis. Here's Andy Roddick telling a legendary story that involves him, a club tennis player, and a frying pan. Andy, there was a book written 
Andy Roddick beat me with a frying pan. Uh, where does that legend come from? Well, there was a, there was a guy who was a, had an idea for a book. It was basically like weekend warriors. What would the handicaps have to be if you were to play a, a, a pro? And so uh, he called me and said, hey, wh what do you think? I, there's a Ohio University intramural champion. So kind of guy who's good at tennis on his campus. What would the handicap have to be? Could you play him lefty? I said, I could play him lefty, but I think I'd win. He said, okay, you're being arrogant. I said, okay, that I've been called worse, but I actually think I could beat him with a frying pan. Um, I go, but the only caveat is there has to be people in the crowd. So we did it before one of my charity events when people were kind of filing in a little bit. So I was playing on the nerves of the guy and ended up uh, toughing him out 6-4. <laughs> you beat him. Was that lefty with the frying pan or, or righty with it? No, it was, uh, I, I needed my right hand for that frying pan victory. It was just, it was one of those things where you just push the ball in the middle and run. Hey, that story's great. And uh, just shows you how good pro athletes are, apparently. Uh, I don't know what the cutoff is, what the actual handicap is. Maybe we'll figure it out. But right-handed, frying pan, 6-4 in a set, crowd in play. Something to think about when we try to formulate this in the future. But a great story from Andy Roddick, who, again, is a content goldmine here for the TC Live podcast. Well, Tennis Channel Live's History Week highlighted the greatest personalities in the sport, not inclusive to just the players. And make no mistake about it, nobody championed the sport as much as the late, great Bud Collins. The journalist and TV personality absolutely loved the game and was a driving force behind the synergy of tennis and sports television. Though he passed away in 2016, Bud's impact on the game continues to be felt and will never be erased from the annals of history. John Wertheim, along with fellow sports writer and dear friend of Bud, Mike Lupica, Reminisce on the life and times of the legendary Bud Collins. Well, you can't talk about Wimbledon without breakfast at Wimbledon, without discussing Bud Collins, Mike. Uh, I know you have a long history with Bud. How did you meet Bud, and uh, what was it like eventually going to tournaments and watching tennis with him? I met him over the phone. I was working nights at the Boston Globe while I was going to Boston College, and Bud was always calling from some far-flung place on the tennis map to dictate a story. I mean, that, that was the world then. And here I am. I'm sitting there at a typewriter, an old manual typewriter. John will appreciate that. Typing out these fabulous, funny, smart, knowing words from Bud. And, and we just we, then we would strike up a conversation. He said, kid, I'll meet you when I come back. And then he started taking me to tennis tournaments. And I, I've said this a lot of times, Steve and John, and I've written this many times. My life and my career would not have been remotely similar if I had not experienced the generosity, the kindness of Bud Collins early in my career. The first money I ever made in this business was writing about tennis, and those were gigs that Bud got me. And I think that's no coincidence. I think Bud really took it upon himself to make everyone feel comfortable in this in this tent of tennis. And I would say he'd, he'd give the players these funny nicknames, and it would be a Slick Willie Wrench on, Microwave Martina Hingis, but he gave the journalists nicknames too. And I think part of that was to make everyone feel comfortable. A, I want to know what nickname he gave you, Lupica. But also, I'm wondering if you have world team tennis stories, because when Bud regaled us with Wimbledon and the Australian Open, some of his best stories in tennis took place in Boston. Well, John, his nickname for me was Michelino, because as you know, he just decided late in his life that he was Italian. He said, I, I'm not going to have the operation, but I'm Italian now. So he became, as John knows, Steve, Collini. Collini. <laughs> so we had the Boston Lobsters. Before Robert Kraft was the Patriots, he was the owner of the Boston Lobsters of World Team Tennis. And Tyriac was was the coach. And I have a million stories of that time. One night we're at a cocktail party and I watched Tyriac go around the room and tell the same joke in five different languages and get a laugh with every single group. And another time we're sitting in a bar and Tyriac starts chatting up this woman. And as she walked away, I, I leaned over and I said, Terry, you, you know that woman's married, right? And he looked at me and says, my boy, I am not jealous. <laughs> I want to, I'll tell you a quick one too. The Bud always tells a great Tyriac story where before Boston Lobsters matches, to, to psych up his own team, he would chew a champagne glass, which apparently <laughs> is a talent that uh, Tyriac has. But I, I want to take a minute and talk about, and I hope you can jump in here, Mike, and talk about Bud's writing. Because I think people know about the crazy pants and the nicknames and fingers fortescue. But I, I think sometimes in the retelling, his skills as a journalist haven't quite gotten uh, their, their full credit. And as someone who knew him as long as you did, 
I want you to talk about a but as, as a writer and a reporter and, and not so much as a, as a showman. John, I'm so glad you threw in the word reporter because he was a great reporter because people wanted to tell Bud things. He wrote wonderfully about politics. He, he to, for my money, he was one of the great boxing writers of, of his time. And it was smart and it was funny and it was knowing. The last day I ever watched a tennis match with Bud, and it was by sheer chance, um, for some bizarre lack of taste reason, the USTA would invite me to sit in the president's box every year. Just a, a total breakdown of decorum. I don't know why they did it. And and Bud, the media center was being dedicated to Bud the next day. But I didn't know he was going to come on Saturday. We didn't even know he was going to make it for the, the media center, um, the honoring of him. And all of a sudden, my wife Taylor and I are having lunch. And Anita comes in. And Bud was in a wheelchair by then. And... John, I got to spend one more afternoon in my life watching tennis with Bud Collins. But Rolf Fung, the old player, was there. And I had never forgotten one of Bud's funniest leads was he won a match at Wimbledon one year. And Bud's lead was it was like Dr. Seuss. What sort of thing is a thung? And when I was introduced to, to Rolf Thung, I started to say it. And I said, do you remember one time he wrote about you? And I said, what sort of thing? And he looked at me, he goes, is it Thung? And, and, and during our, our watching of a Federer match th that day, Bud turned to me. I wrote a column about it the next day. And he said, where else would you rather be, kid? And, and John and Steve, it was like every day of my life that I ever spent watching tennis with Bud Collins. And he never lost that, uh, you know, co covering matches deep into his 70s. I, I would also say, you know, you, you and I are talking right now on, on the TV, and uh, you and I are both writers, but both work in this medium as well. I, I feel like we both ought to be paying a 10% tax to Bud Collins. I mean, I think another way in which maybe he hasn't gotten his full due, he was really the first of these sports writers to cross over into this visual medium that uh, you and I dabble in as well. Um, I, and I don't know if he gave you tips when you did sports reporters, but I'd be interested to know how instrumental he was in, in your crossover to do more TV work. Oh, yeah, no, but, but when we, WGBH in Boston, there he is on, on television, and he'd, he'd go on TV, then he'd go write his column. And, and, and all of a sudden, he, and, and here's the thing, John and Steve, the, the great thing about Bud was he was your host. And I've said this for years, no sports writer was ever more important to a specific sport than Bud Collins was in tennis. Cosell was great with boxing. Madden, all those guys, Summerall, all those guys, okay? Bud not only entertained you, okay? He educated a whole generation of people and made them uh, love tennis. And uh, again, it was such a joy to know him. And I also, I played a lot of tennis with him. And <laughs> one time I said to him, I said, Bud, how come you always make, the, make me play the ad court? And he, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Michael, we want to win the first point, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know what? I'm going to speak for all the viewers right now and borrow some words from Bud. Where else would you rather be? Such a pleasure to hear the two of you, John and Mike, discuss uh, the legacy and the wonderful life of Bud Collins. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Steve. History Week concluded on Friday with the signature series feature on the one and only Vetus Carolitis. You have captivated the game and lifestyle of a tennis player in the 70s and 80s, quite like Vitas. He won the Australian Open and reached a singles ranking career high of number three in a 15-year career. Tragically, though, Vitas passed away way too soon at the age of 40, but his memory lives on in the people who knew and revered him. Our own Leif Shiras and Mary Carrillo joined the TC Live podcast to talk about the life and times of Vitas Carolitis. Leif. You know Vitas very well. You knew him. You partied with him. You went out with him. What was it like to be the wingman for Vitas Garolitis? Well, you were stepping into a world that you weren't accustomed to stepping into, that's for sure. You know, it was the jet set life. Uh, there was a big charitable event in Colorado, and I can remember we flew to Aspen on a Gulf Stream out of New York. And of course, that's the jet you're on in those days. And on board was Andy Warhol and his business partner, Fred Hughes. So you're traveling in pretty impressive style. Of course, we get there, get ready for the event. But the very first night, it's off to Jimmy Buffett's house, and pretty much everyone is there. Jack Nicholson was there. John McEnroe was attending the party. I was out on the patio in line to get a beer, and a gentleman is, you know, tapping the beer, and he says, "Can I get you one?" I said, "Yes." 
And he said, are you one of the tennis players? I said, uh, yes, I am. And I am, I'm Leaf. And he goes, I'm Glenn. And I go, so what are you up to these days, Glenn? He goes, well, the Eagles are going to go back on tour. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Glenn Fry. I get it. I get it right. So, I mean, this was the A-list atmosphere that you were in. And you were suddenly in this world that Vetus inhabited pretty much every day. And he was uh, able to give you a glimpse of what that life was all about. Yeah, I think I was at that event as well in Aspen. And we went to Mart, uh, Marty Davis's house. Was that his name? I think the Davis family was at the head of it. And they raised, uh, you know, seven figures. Howard Cosell was leading the auction. It was a very big affair. And Venus and John were right at the forefront of it all. Yeah, exactly. So, Leif, you came a little behind Vetus. You're a little bit younger. So what was Vetus like as a friend, particularly for someone who came out of the tour and, and was new to it? Well, the first time I, I saw Vetus was uh, at Turnberry Island. Uh, Princeton University tennis team was in the lobby getting ready to either turn it, turn it in for the night. But I remember seeing this guy go through the lobby and I followed him out to the front and he got inside a white Corvette. And I think it was Rick Fagel's Corvette, a former tour player as well. We know Rick well. And uh, as Mary said in that piece, he could make getting out of a car look good. I thought he looked <laughs> good getting into a car. I'm like, who is that guy? Uh, and it turned out it was Venus Gerolitis. And ultimately when I got on tour, uh, some of the friends that I practiced with were practicing with him. So he turned me on to Harry Hopman's Academy and what it meant to get a hard day's work on the court. This is a guy who, if you had two guys at the net on one side and he was in the backcourt, he could go for 15 or 20 minutes in a two-man drill. And that was pretty remarkable. Most guys could become winded after you know a few minutes, but Vetus was out there for an eternal time. He was the original Quadzilla. I mean, this guy's legs were massive. He could run all day. He had a heart of gold, uh, but he also had the heart of a great competitor, a real lion. Quadzilla. I love that, Leaf. Uh, work hard, play hard. Uh, what, what's one characteristic maybe that, that doesn't get mentioned enough about Vita Scarolitis? Well, I, I think, you know, this uh, show we've done today has captured his charitable side. You know, he had the Vita Scarolitis Youth Foundation giving away thousands of tennis rackets to inner city kids. So he was very generous and coordinated that with efforts in the UK for similar uh, charitable groups there. So he had a real heart of gold. I mean, this is a wonderful picture, isn't it? Of him coming in from the night before being, you know, followed by the kids. I mean, this is the energy he brought, the excitement he brought. Uh, and you can see that uh, it was contagious. He had that charm, that personality that would, uh, it infected everyone. He was a lovely guy in that regard. But I think also as a player, now, he was a guy who was very competitive. He had an excellent ability to stay in a long match. You know, I think it's kind of ironic that, you know, some of his greatest matches were losses. You know, he lost to Lendl at the Masters in New York in Madison Square Garden. He had a match point, second serve, and he didn't come in. You might remember that. He didn't come in, and that was something that had put him in a winning position. Uh, also, the loss to Bjorn Borg at Wimbledon, but he had some brilliant victories as well. Also, on the Davis Cup, but remember the win over Guillermo Vilas in Rome, down two sets to one, a five-hour match against really the original beast, who was Guillermo Vilas on clay. And Vilas uh, and Vitas took him down in five, in a five-hour match. I mean, that's a testament to his work ethic, his commitment to the sport, and to his competitiveness. And Leif, we know that everything Vitas did, he did full throttle. And you know, it was tennis, but then he got into guitar. He was hanging out with all the rock stars. And then towards the end of his life, it was golf that he basically became obsessed with, sometimes playing 36 holes a day. How good was he at guitar and how good did he become at golf? <laughs> well, he was an excellent musician. I believe when he was young, he was very skilled on the piano. So he adapted to guitar pretty easily. You might remember the 1980s were all about guitar players. Uh, at the end of the Mita Festival, we flew home Sunday night back to New York and we went straight to a restaurant where we walk in and suddenly he's saying hello to Roger Waters of Pink Floyd and Eric Clapton. So it's like, my gosh, this guy's orbit is phenomenal. And of course, for a kid from Milwaukee sitting across the table from Eric Clapton, I'm like, oh, so well, what have you been up to, Eric? You know, you had to adjust your reality to what Venus's reality was. It was just something so special to be around. Got Clapton, you got Pink Floyd, you got the Eagles in there. Any, any other name drops for us before we let you go? 
Well, he played the Canadian Open, had great success in Toronto. And I can remember we went to the Masonic Temple in downtown Toronto. Stevie Ray Vaughan was playing. And right to the back of the theater, right into Stevie Ray Vaughan's bus, and then back out on the stage. I mean, these were special moments. And he really cherished the magicians, musicians that he looked up to. He wanted to become a better guitarist and ultimately a golfer, Tracy. And I think it was nice for him to have a reason to get up in the morning. Instead of sleeping in late, he had something to, again, put all that wonderful energy that he had into. In terms of talking Vetus, you were teammates, uh, World Team Tennis, the New York Apples. What was it was like to be a, a teammate of Vetus Garolitis? Uh, so it was a great team, Steve, because it was, it was Vetus and Joanne Russell, who's still a very good friend of mine, Billie Jean King, and our captain, Fred Stalin. And so, I mean, I, and we were in New York. And the first road trip, I remember it was a morning flight, and Vetus gets there late, and he's got this unbelievable suit on. And he's just got his bag behind him, and he's, and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, I go up to Captain Fred Stalin, I say, hey, is there like a dress code? Are we supposed to be wearing, you know, really good clothes when we travel as a team? And Fred said, Mez, he just hasn't gone to sleep yet. So that's what I didn't quite understand about Vitas, but he was a great team player. He really enjoyed himself, and. Uh, I'll tell you another story. He, at Madison Square Garden, he was in the year-end championships. And he, it was a round robin, eight guys. And he comes up. To, he was just about to play his match. And I've got a seat. I'm up in the whack seats. I'm, on my, I'm making my way up to the worst seat in Madison Square Garden. And Vita stops me. And he's like in a rush. And he's got this fistful of box seats, box seat tickets. And he said, Mary, uh, you've got to do me a favor. Uh, you got to get four envelopes, and here's a list of the names. I'm there. Oh yeah, I'll just pull some envelopes out of my keister. What? And just leave these at the will call for these four different sets of tickets. And whatever you do, don't mix them up. He had planted like various girlfriends, like at the different quadrants <laughs> of Madison Square Garden, and he like it was like, do not whatever you do, do not cross the streams. So that. <laughs> There are a lot of, and Jimmy's, I'm sure Jimmy's got great stories and great memories of this guy too. He left so many behind. I had, I gave the eulogy, one of the eulogies, Jimmy Connors gave another one at his funeral. And I, I said there, his legacy was laughter. I mean, he walked into a room and he made the room better. That's what I was going to ask you about, actually, Mary, is how is it possible for a guy to be with Nastasi? Borg, McEnroe, Connors, and all of those diverse characters consider him yeah. a great friend or one of their best yeah. friends. I mean, how did he pull that off exactly? Well, that's right. And, and Guillermo Villas, too. McEnroe and Connors couldn't stand being around each other back in the day. And, you know, Villas was kind of a loner off by himself, and Borg was quiet, and Vitas could make every every one of them his friend. It, it was it was something to see. And, and I mean, when that they, we've been showing that 77 semifinal at Wimbledon between Vetus and Bjorn. I used to watch them practice at Vetus's court all the time because Rudiger Olaitis, his kid sister, was my best friend growing up. And so they knew each other's patterns so well. And as John McEnroe said, he and I were in the quarterfinals on court, the old court two at Wimbledon, and we could just hear the match going on. We could hear the place's rapturous applause. Uh, from from this match, and we're missing it. And our buddy John had just finished playing against Connors. Here's our buddy playing, and we heard the match. We didn't really get to see much of it. And what was really something was after the match, Vitas comes into the press conference, and he's being really funny and really smart, and just and finally, one of the press guys said, Vitas, how could you've just lost this heartbreaker of a match? How can you be so upbeat? And Vita said, hey, you know, I thought I was going to win that match. I had all this great material. I didn't want to waste it. <laughs> this is who Vita was. He was an amazing fellow. You talk about his generosity of spirit. Uh, what was he like with those kids during the clinics? It was great because uh, um, Mrs. Gerolaitis um, and my mom were also best friends. And so we would go to, you know, he... We'd get these vans and we'd fill them up with balls and rackets, all those rackets he gave away. Um, and we'd go to all, you know, the five boroughs and he would have Nastasi and Chrissy and Bjorn. And I mean, he, everybody played for him. Everybody. Arthur Ashe. It, it was 
And so we'd be loading up in the morning, and Mrs. Garolitis will have put out this big breakfast buffet, and we're getting the rackets ready, taking the plastic off of them. And, and oh, there was one time where, where Vetus walked in. He clearly had a late night. He walked through the kitchen, and the TV was on, and he said, so that's Good Morning America. I've never seen it before. And as he walked away, he said, and I hope I never see it again. <laughs> but he was... I, we were, we were, I think it was in the Bronx. Um, I was handing out rackets with Mr. Garolitis, with Vetus's dad, and my sister Gina, and and one of the kids. You know, these kids didn't know anything about tennis. Vetus was bringing it to them. It was this big park experience. And one of the kids took a racket and took off with it, ran off. And I started running off after the kid. And Vetus saw me chasing down this kid, and he said, "No, man, let let him go, let him go." Uh, by the end of the the clinic. This kid had wandered back, and he was on the court, and Vetus was showing him how to hit forehands. I mean, there are so many great stories about this guy, um, and I mean, I'm, I just feel very, very honored and blessed that I got to share the air with him. And that's it for this week's show. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to the TC Live podcast. A reminder that you can find every episode on the Tennis Podcast Network, tennis.com slash podcasts. And every episode is also available on all your podcast platforms. Next week, French Open Week on Tennis Channel Live, a three-hour show Monday to Friday, recapping every year of the last five years French Opens, all the action from Roland Garros. Monday, we start with 2015, work our way to 2019 on Friday. A lot of good content that you're not going to want to miss. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the Tennis Channel Live podcast. We'll see you next week.